Tennis tragic news today. Roger Federer has announced he'll miss this year's French Open after undergoing knee surgery. We now cross to Roger's hospital bed in Zurich, Switzerland, to hear a statement from him. Ah, uh, could you just put another pillow under there, please? And and just pass me that juice. Can you put a straw. If you put a straw there, I can drink it. Thanks. Roger, they're, they're waiting for your statement. Oh, yeah, okay. Um, well, uh, everybody, uh, my right knee has been bothering me for a little while, and um, I hoped it would go away, but after an examination and discussion with my team and with Merka, um, I decided to have an arthroscopic surgery. Now I know what you're thinking, arthroscopic. It's a big word, arthroscopic. Lots of syllables, arthroscopic. Four syllables, in fact. But you know, it's not much of a big deal. It's just keyhole surgery, pretty much. Not a reconstruction or anything. And you know, I'm only gonna miss a few tournaments. I'm gonna miss, uh, let's see, Dubai, by Indian Wells. And I was gonna play in Colombia. I won't be able to do that now. Um, I'll, I'll miss Miami, and, and I'll miss the French Open, which is quite a, quite a big tournament, isn't it? But you know what? I'll be back for Wimbledon. I'll be back on the grass, and I will see you there. Also, thanks for everyone's support, um, and thanks to the doctors. You know what? They. Um, they looked when they they looked into my knee um, through that little keyhole. They um, they realised that it was the right thing to do. So we made the right decision, and um, now I just got to sit back and recover and get better, and um, and so I can play tennis again. So Matt, you just uh, you just broke this incredible important news to me. Uh, I had not heard about Roger Federer having to uh, having to get knee surgery. So this was probably the first time that the tennis tragic news has uh, has broken a story. Well, um, that's good. I'm glad it was useful for you. I found out from the Sydney Morning Herald, um, and I think, yeah, that was like not too long after the story broke internationally that I read that article. Right. Um, yeah, my initial reaction was like something of shock, like uh, even though it's not entirely unexpected, I guess I didn't think he had a knee problem. I thought he was having trouble with his groin or his back. Um, he just, he's getting to that place in his career where he is just perpetually a little bit hurt, right? And that's sort of the, the sadness of watching Roger at this point in time, just not knowing if he's going to be able to like get through a tournament. Yeah. Um... And I think, I mean, he he is like a pretty great physical specimen who has been famously um, very durable and 
and hardly had any injuries throughout his career, but that I wonder if this knee, it's the right knee, is the same knee that he in, he injured when he was bathing his children in the bath, because that was like one of the first. <laughs> that was one of the first injuries he ever had. Like it was a few years ago, and that's when he right. had to take a bit of time off. And um, that was that was uh, that was the injury when where when he came back uh, to the Australian Open after missing an extended period of time away for the first time in his career, he, uh, he ran the table and won the tournament. So, you know, optimistic Roger fans will think maybe, maybe this is a, a blessing. Yeah, I guess he's timed it um, to miss the French Open, which is his least favorite surface. So um, he's, he's got his eyes on Wimbledon um, to come back properly for that yeah yeah I think realistically the only slam he's going to win again if he wins another slam again will be Wimbledon so you know I almost think he could prepare his entire you know the entire first half of his season around Wimbledon uh, for the next couple years you know give it a real shot because if he had a draw at Wimbledon like he had at the Aussie I think you would have to give him a uh, you know a a roughly 50-50 chance of, of going home with the title, I think. Yeah, uh, the only question is, can he his body hold up, I guess? I think his game is holding up. Yeah, and I think that grass, like, supports him. You know, like, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't feel the, uh, the weight of it. You know, it's, the hard courts just kind of wear you down. It's like at a certain point, the... the the hammering, and that's the thing about Rafa. I always thought that like he was the guy who was gonna, who was gonna fade first because he's just his style is so aggressive, his his physicality is so grinding, and you know, and it seemed for a long time like he was really struggling on hard courts. Like he would, he was having trouble getting through those big tournaments. Um, but lately, he's been kind of strong. So I guess you can never tell. I, I just I was looking. I very briefly Googled for news about Roger. And it seemed like, you know, of course, the, you know, the press is just, so, you know, they're breathlessly like, well, we are, we have, we're speculating about Roger's future and, um, you know, it's, it probably doesn't have much time left. Raises doubts about Roger's future, you know, like that sort of language. Um, anyway. Right. You know, um, uh, ESPN Tennis in, in Espanol, the Instagram account, it, um, it tells us that all it, with all these tournaments that Roger's going to miss, which is Dubai, Indian Wells, Miami, Madrid, Rome, and Roland Garros, he's going to drop 3,180 tennis points. Wow. Because um, he won Dubai and he won Miami. And yep, and he was a finalist at Indian Wells. Yeah, and he was a semi-finalist at... Um, the French? Yes. Um, and he's also got 180 points at Madrid and Rome, respectively. So he. Um, Where, what's that going to drop him to? Seventh. Oh, <laughs> so he's still got a few thousand in the bank, I guess. Yeah, he's still top 10, even, even with losing all those. Right, but that puts him into like that category. He, he won't have his own quarter at Wimbledon, um, so there's a chance that he could end up in a quarter with with Rafa or or Novak. Yeah, he will only have his own 
eighth. Yeah, yeah. I mean, then again, he could also end up in a quarter with Dominic Team, who doesn't seem to ever have interest in playing on grass at all, um, and goes out in the first round every year. Vasek Pospisil is in the news again uh, for his sudden habit of drinking maple syrup during changeovers. Mm. Um, it's uh, it's pretty curious, you know. I, I I feel like you know, like athletes, they want they want a, a sugar boost, you know, but usually they and they want to get it from a natural source, you know, and and a lot of you know different top athletes have like their kind of signature snack. You know, uh, like Novak Djokovic is always eating these like these like fig bits, and um, I think that's what they are. Dates? No, they're dates. Dates. Um, yeah, same thing. No, uh, no, the date and the fig are different fruits. Yeah, but they're basically the same thing. Right. I guess figs are, there's like a wide variety of figs out there in the world. I really, I'm a little bit fig, fig ignorant. Me too. And um, I, I didn't used to know what figs looked like uh, in their fresh form because I only had dried figs. Mm, right. But now I do know what um, they look like. Yeah, it's a totally, they're, they're very different. I mean, a lot of fruits change form kind of dramatically when you when you uh, dehydrate them yeah but, uh, yeah dried figs uh, yeah and fresh figs I mean fresh figs are like these lush beautiful you know fruits you know what's really good dried is pear hmm I don't know if I've ever had dried pear oh you gotta try it all right um, I think my favorite dried fruit is mango um, I think dried mango is incredible. Um, I also like dried apricots. Dried apricots are much superior to um, actual apricots in my experience. You say apricot. That's what I'm saying today. It could be different tomorrow. Apricot? What do you say? Oh, yeah, ape, apricot. Like, apricot. Uh, yeah, like the animal, the ape, and then ricot. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, variety is the spice of life, and that's that's the thing about uh, Pospisil drinking maple syrup. It it seems like it you know it almost seems like it was a marketing ploy or something. Like he's somehow he's such a he's a Canadian player, Vasic, and uh, or Vasic, um, and you know maple syrup is uh, you know is commonly produced in Canada. In fact, you know when I lived in Canada some number of years ago. Um, one of the things that, that people do for, for fun, um, uh, if you live and grow up in Quebec, is uh, it's called the Sugar Shack. Have you ever heard of the Sugar Shack? No. So the Sugar Shack is like, I feel like it's almost like you're going to somebody's farm. So these, these like maple farms set up these, these kind of like restaurant dining halls. And, uh, and so in the winter, you know, you go out there with like your friends and family and, and they have these like wild buffets, you know, just like, you know, endless slices of ham and waffles and pancakes and, and you put maple syrup on everything. It's just the, the, 
the sugar part of the sugar shack is the maple syrup. So you go there and, and it's just this all-you-can-eat um, you know, gorging festival um, that's centered around maple syrup. Who's putting these things on, this event on? I mean, I guess it's kind of like, it's like a type of business. So I imagine it's either, you know, it's like, yeah, farmers who, you know, they have, um, you know, they've got like a little property. You know, I almost feel like it, it would be equivalent. It reminds me, thinking back to that experience I had of going to a sugar shack, it reminded me of like in Texas going out to like a, uh, like a brewery in the hill country, you know, okay. like a vineyard. You know, it's like somebody with a big plot of land and they, they, they're doing this production, but then they have a way of kind of turning it into a, um, you know, like an event space. Like a winery, like on a vineyard, and then they have like wine tastings, and then these yeah. are like are these maple tree farmers. Yeah, I think that's I think that's basically what it is. But I, it was so long ago. I mean, this is probably over twenty years that I went to a to a sugar shack, and it was it was the, you know it was deep into the winter, and um, and um, you know I probably ate so much maple syrup that I um, lost my senses. Um. <laughs> it's very, it's a very good syrup. My, um, my dad makes really good pancakes and he's been overseas. I don't know if he's ever been to Canada. He's certainly been to the United States and I assume they have Canadian maple syrup in the US, right? I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's also commonly produced from like places like Vermont. So we can get, the, we can get pretty good quality top quality uh, maple syrup throughout the U.S., but uh, some, sometimes the best stuff is, uh, is imported from Canada. Right. Well, he, he always, um, you know, he, he doesn't do the maple-flavored syrup. Um, he just, you know, the pure maple syrup is what you have to have on your pancakes. I, mean, right. I don't think he'll even really make pancakes if he doesn't have maple syrup. Um, and he always gets camp brand maple syrup. Do you have, do you know that brand? I don't know that brand. Maybe it's the only one we can get in Australia. Um, but, um, but, uh, yeah, maple syrup's great. I wonder how they get it out of the tree, though. Like, it's, did... it's done with, like, a tap. You've, like, this is actually, like, I think, I think it was, I have this memory of doing this as a child, um, like, at, at nursery school or something that I, I, maple trees grow on Long Island and you know I don't know that Long Island is known for maple syrup production um, I don't know if maybe there's some kind of climate thing like a certain you know type of climate produces better quality syrup yeah. but I remember that there were you would go to a farm and, and like they literally like drill a tap into the side of the tree and it just comes out of the tree and the tree survives the procedure yeah, the tree survives the procedure. And if you take too much, can you harm the tree if you take too much maple syrup? It's an it's a really good question. I would, I'm not sure. I think we need to we need to dig into this, do a little bit more research. Kind of like our like how we need to do more research about Vasek Pospisil's uh, union organization work. Um, but he, uh, yeah, he is. He sounds he seems like an interesting guy. Anyway, with. with um, because he's got the maple syrup thing, he's eccentric, and he cares about the politics of player representation. Right. Yeah. He's um, he's a, uh, he's clearly a very intelligent, 
tennis player and uh, and passionate about issues related to the sport. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, he's for a guy who's you know not who hasn't had like any like super huge results to, to speak of. I think he made a Wimbledon quarter once actually. He's a very good grass player. Um, uh, that would probably be like the pinnacle of his uh, of his tennis career. Um, yeah, he's he remains in the limelight. He's probably a guy who's going to have uh, a post playing career of note. Yeah. based on his current activities. Yeah, he's and he's former top 50, and even though he's ranked outside the top 100 now because of his injuries, he's, he's had some great results just of late. He's been winning. And I think he's playing Stefano Sitsipas next in Marseille. Oh, he's still alive in Marseille. Interesting. Yeah, I saw part of the Sitsipas match um, against uh, Mikhail Emer the other night. I saw the very end of it. Tsitsipas uh, was dominating. It was was not did not look competitive. I think it was six one six three something like that. All right. So over the last couple of weeks, I've been followed on Instagram by two separate small time tennis podcasts. Um, and so I wanted to, to give them a shout out. Um, let's see here. So uh, one podcast is called Game to Love, and the other is called Passing Shot. So thank you for following me personally. Uh, I don't think either one of them has actually followed the Tennis Tragic, which is, which is strange. Like, I, I thought to myself, like, well, there are these other... Um, I'm, you know, I use the word... I use the phrase small time, but, I, I, you know, it's just... I just mean that they're starting out. They don't have big audiences. Um, yeah. What, actually, one of those two podcasts has been recording for a few years, and I think they have up to almost 100 um, episodes. And wow, that's, uh, that's impressive. Yeah, it's very impressive dedication. Um, so I can't remember which one it was. Let me, let me take a quick look. I think it was Game to Love. So Game to Love. Oh, no, Game are, to Love have followed the Tennis Tragic podcast. Okay, they have. I think because I talked to that guy, I had a conversation with him, um, and because and I asked him if he if he knew what the tennis tragic was. Um, it seems like they're YouTube focused, and I was just kind of checking them out. I haven't actually listened to them yet, but they had a YouTube video where they they discussed. They had the conversation like, who is the greatest of all time? You know, Roger, Rafa, or Novak? They had that debate. And that video for them got like 8,000 views. Hmm. Um, and their previous podcasts, you know, maybe they had like 100 listens or something. Um, and I think that kind of gets back to that point of like how, the, you know, that common knowledge, the, the, like everybody can chime. If you watch tennis, even sort of casually um, or just a little bit beyond casually, you probably have an opinion on that topic. And uh, so it's kind of interesting. You know, it's almost like the clickbait uh, version of, of a podcast of a tennis podcast episode. Who is right. the greatest? Right. Yeah, because you're going to get some hits. There's a lot of people searching um, the big three on the internet, and that's bound to come up. Yeah, and you know, people love to be outraged. You know, and I think, and that's something that I've always kind of, that I've learned that I I enjoy about sport is that 
I can get really worked up about something and it just doesn't, and then I can let it go. You know, it's, it's practice for that. Like I can argue with somebody about why Roger is the greatest and not Novak and, um, and I don't really care. But the thing is oftentimes people on the internet really seem to care and they get really personally attached. And I mm. feel like that's unhealthy and, and kind of not that, not that fun at a certain point, you know? Yeah, I know, I know what you mean. Um, and we've all, well, I certainly have read, um, internet, uh, forums and, you know, like the messages at the end of news articles and end of YouTube videos where people get really nasty to each other just because yeah. they disagree and they start attack, attacking each other personally. I think there's all kinds of interesting perspectives that are not commonly explored, you know? Like, what does it mean to be great? Right, and would we consider any people outside the, the big three in that discussion? You know, is it, is it about is it about the greatness of their of their humanity? Is it about the greatness of the, of their narrative, their personal narrative? Um, when you just when like the word uh, the acronym GOAT is so commonly used in all sports, you know, um, but it only it only means the greatest of all time. It doesn't mean the greatest player of all time. It doesn't mean the greatest champion of all time. It just means the greatest. And I think that's really open to interpretation. Yeah, for sure. The greatest. But then, it, then people start spending some time defining what they mean by the greatest, and then that becomes a discussion. Like, um, in basketball, is it the greatest scorer, um, or the, the most championships, or the best all-round game? And what about not just their offensive game, but their defensive game. Um, and does their personality come into play? Because often, you, there are great players in every sport who don't, who don't seem to have that kind of charisma, the, the following. I mean, if you look at the way that Kobe Bryant was celebrated um, after his unfortunately untimely death, it shows a kind of love, like an attachment an appreciation that goes far beyond just what he did in the game. You know, it was really, it was about who he was. It was about his personality and the, the stories that came from him. And that's part of why I kind of think Roger will be the greatest, even if the other two guys like just keep going and win, you know, 25, 28 slams. You know, I, I think for some people, what for me, what Roger means to the sport, he brought me in. Like, I was in. I had some interest in the sport as a kid, but like, I got out of it. I stopped paying attention. And then, the story of Federer, the legend of Federer, is what brought me in. And that's that's not something that can really be, you know, that can be replaced. Yeah. Um, so, so you're saying there's like maybe the era and the aura that surrounds a player and the kind of narrative that gets constructed about them um, both by what they do and how it's interpreted by the media and how how fans discuss it at the time it's it's 
a very fluid kind of thing that doesn't necessarily stick to to rules of um, of statistics around how many wins they've had. Right. It's a it's a totally subjective evaluation. It's it's something that has to be discussed. It can't be determined just by numbers. Uh, let me. I, I was just thinking of a hypothetical example. Like, imagine if there was a Milos Raonic-esque male tennis player, but who was more dominant. You know, like like a serve bot who just started dominating and winning all the tournaments, and you know, and over the course of seven eight years, you know, won twenty slams. But people, you know, resented the the play style. They they you know they came to you know dislike watching the sport because this person was dominating and their personality and their mm. their style of play were so boring like numbers wise they could have been superior to every other tennis player of all time but um i think you have to you have to consider the love and that's that's a that's a personal and subjective element right um ivan lendl famously got no love uh, right. at the beginning of his um, his career when he when he first won started winning championships and I think Sports Illustrated ran a cover story of him which was something like uh, the title was The Champion That No One Cares About <laughs> oh that's so that's that's uh, it's pretty sad it's kind of tragic because he was like uh, McEnroe was around and Borg, Borg would have been around and other great players that had I guess that had different personalities and I think Yvonne Lendl was maybe a little more um, uh, I don't know focused intensely self-focused and maybe didn't um, yeah for whatever reason didn't get as much love and he wasn't American or Western European he was Czech, so maybe that has something to do with it to the culture um. right um, yeah he was um, I couldn't stand Ivan Lendl as a kid and McEnroe was, was the player that I loved and idolized and um, uh, David Foster Wallace uh, wrote about uh, wrote the following about John McEnroe uh, at his peak say 1980 to 1984 he was the greatest tennis player who ever lived the most talented the most beautiful, the most tormented, the genius. Mm. And I feel like that that sums up the, you know, that lens, right? I mean, McEnroe, McEnroe was a great player and had all kinds of on-court successes. You know, I'm sure many people would consider him one of the greater players to ever live, but it was how he transcended the game in these other ways, how he became bigger than it. Um, uh, that made him more appealing. And, and, you know, look, that's subjective. You know, I'm sure a lot of people, I'm sure there are people out there and uh, who resented and disliked McEnroe, you know, because they just, that sort of um, behavior didn't appeal to them, didn't make the game seem better or more interesting, didn't find him beautiful in his madness. Yeah, right. 